This New America NYC event took place on April 24th and is entitled "Digital Democracy: What the World's First Big Data Project Tell Us About the Future of Identity." This event was presented in partnership with the Consulate General of Denmark in New York and the European Institute at Columbia University. Good evening and welcome, everyone. I'm Tom Fress, and I'm a member of New America's Board of Directors, and I'm the chair of New America's New York City Advisory Council. And we're very excited to be partnering with the Consulate General of Denmark here in、uh, here in New York, and with Columbia University's European Institute to present tonight's event, Digital Democracy: The Past, the Present, and the Future of Digital Identity. Now, tonight's event marks the 50th anniversary of Denmark's civil personal registration system, their system of countrywide digital social security numbers, and we're going to use this moment to take a look at their system, but also discuss some of the context around it. In the first panel, we'll hear more about the Danish CPR system, which has proven to be a remarkably successful social instrument for their population. But of course, in what maybe is the understatement of the evening. There's been a lot of changes in technology in the last five decades. So then, in the second session, we're looking forward to hearing from many thought leaders, <clears throat> including one of New America's own technology experts, to assess what new challenges digital IDs bring up, particularly around data, around pri- rights, privacy, and, and security. So to say a bit more about this and to introduce our keynote speaker, please welcome New America's. New York City Director Ilana Reitman. Thank you so much, Tom, and thank you very much to our partners, Danish, the Danish Consulate, in particular, Consul General Rigelson, Megan Derno, and Andrew、um, Giacolone, and to Francois Carrel Biard and Sharon Kim at Columbia University.、Um, we're delighted to be here with you today, and we're really thrilled to be involved in such a timely topic as the discussion of digital IDs. Judging by the number in attendance tonight, we're not only we're not the only ones who find it compelling to examine what has worked so well in Denmark, a system for cataloging personal information which simplifies Danes' access to benefits and services, helps scientists learn how to improve health conditions, and helps the country、um, maintain a healthy tax system.、Uh, but whether and how it could work in a system like the United States, or frankly anywhere else. In complex countries is going to be the question, as Tom said, for panel two.、Um, we're going through a season of particular emphasis on personal data. Congressional hearings focused on how global social media platforms have used our data have highlighted, for many Americans, the risks to privacy and much more. In a now infamous case in India,、um, there is a biometric identity system that has developed a security leak that compromised many of their citizens' data, even resulting in an online sale of their identities. And no doubt, people are now diligently working to stop the leak. But in the meantime, governments from Russia to the Philippines are reviewing the possibility of replicating India's work. Even if the technology flaws are fixed, the question remains whether a digital ID in the hands of one of those governments would be as benign as the one in the hands of the Danes. And right here in New York, some were concerned enough with implications of government use of data that a new law establishes. A commission to study government use of algorithms and how they base decisions on our data. So the questions we're going to hear about tonight include: 
what's so good about digital IDs? What's the risk? And what can we do if we don't live in Denmark to leverage the power of personal data without undermining the freedoms that we so value? I'm really looking forward to the conversation, but first I'm delighted to introduce Ambassador Jonas Bering Lisberg, uh, Denmark's State Secretary for Foreign Policy. Mr. Ambassador. Thank you very much. Thank you for your introduction. And on behalf of the government of Denmark, I would like to voice my sincere appreciation to New America's New York City Director, Elena Brightman, New America, New York City Advisory uh, Council Chair, Tom, and also to Columbia University's European Institute, uh, Mr. For making this uh, evening's event possible. Thank you all. Um, I'm thrilled to be here today to open this panel discussion addressing the future of digital democracy and the roles uh, tech can play in molding our societies. Amid the recent events uh, involving uh, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, and Cambridge Analytica, the state of digital democracy is, of course, a very topical issue and it's an issue that we Danes hold quite close to our heart, hearts and we share uh, the concern even if we uh, have a lot of trust and enjoy a, a very uh, predictable and safe digital environment in general in, in Denmark. We've been at the forefront of the digital world, I, I, I say with little modesty, for, for quite a long time. First uh, country to appoint a tech ambassador to Silicon Valley to forge an open dialogue between our government and the giants of, of tech industry uh, in the spirit of, of tech diplomacy, as we call it. We're also one of the leaders in promoting innovation at the United Nations. We have just been at meetings uh, today and, and yesterday sponsoring innovation activities at major agencies such as uh, UNICEF and UNDP. And yes, we are the country that launched this civil registration number system known as CPR, the world's first big data project. I know CPR has a different connotation in, in English, at least in America. It, it's not about resuscitation after cardiac arrest. Uh, it's not that good. And it's not like the NYPD's slogan, which I believe is... Uh, courtesy, uh, professionalism, and respect, the CPR. It's it's civilian registration uh, system. And it, it its birthday is this month, April 1968, 50 years ago, the government of Denmark launched its this system, civil registration system, embarking on a peculiar experiment that quietly transformed our society and foreshadowed global digital revolution of the coming decades. I think we all associate 1968 with many different things, but probably not uh, this system. But it, it is quite an interesting and unique uh, personal registration uh, system that involves giving uh, to each Dane a specific number to help Danish authorities deliver uh, cost-efficient and effective public services to the population. Uh, and in return, uh, Danes uh, would yield their non-sensitive uh, data to this CPR registry. Everything from name, gender, date, uh, date of birth, address, nationality, citizenship, civil status, uh, family relations is catalogued within this CPR registry. And today the registry holds information of some 10 million people, including deceased Danish citizens, We're only around 5.8 million living Danes, uh, and we're all registered within this database. 
the system has facilitated the digitalization of Denmark as a whole in, in recent years. Today, Danes largely interact with the government municipalities through a digital interface using their CPR numbers and a code, a digital ID uh, number that is derived from it. What, what this means is that today the CPR is a cornerstone of Danish society. Uh, now, you may think that sounds like a, a rather mundane, administrative and bureaucratic achievement. You may also think that it sounds like a bit of a scary uh, system. And there will be other Danes in the panel later uh, explaining the pros and cons of the system. And, and, and it's right that it's a bureaucratic achievement in, in many ways. But I think there are two uh, specific aspects that mark the CPR's unique and radical departure from similar registration systems around the world. Um, firstly, the CPR number uh, functions as a special access key to granular data about Denmark's citizens, citizenry as a whole held in all government databases and registries, including the health sector. You must remember that in Denmark, a lot of uh, services such as health and education are public services, uh, so delivered by uh, government or, or municipal authorities or entities. And in fact, the system links all this uh, administrative data together. The ability to access this vast repository of information safely and securely and link different registries using CPR numbers has given Denmark the reputation for being one of the best countries in the world in which to undertake clinical trials for pharmacological research. Secondly, and perhaps most importantly, the CPR registry is vastly appreciated by the population and widely acknowledged as a well-functioning system. Maybe that's because Denmark is one of the least corrupt countries in the world and the Danes have an intrinsic trust in government and a deep sense of community. Um, these traditional Danish values help play a role in making the CPR system uh, an accepted facet of Danish life and allow it to be seen as a necessary uh, tool for authorities providing, for instance, social welfare services. So what does the CPR actually tell us about the future of digital democracy and, in, in our case, Denmark's role on the global stage as a leader in uh, digitalization? For one, it tells us the, uh, that the public space in the digital world must meet on a firm foundation rooted in trust, transparency, and regulatory oversight. In the case of CPR, for instance, access to the registry must always be approved by the Ministry of the Interior, and companies and uh, authorities must comply with special terms set out by this ministry. Failure to comply may be penalized. It's within this framework of trust and responsibility that the Danish government and citizens meet in the digital space. CPR may have been created 50 years ago, but its implications are far-reaching and continue to resonate. It's for this reason that while we acknowledge the critical role CPR has played in our past and continues to play in our present, we must now focus on digital tools like CPR and consider how they impact the future of our democracy. It's undeniable that technology will contribute to solving some of the most acute 
global challenges and bring about a positive transformation with enormous potential for people around the world. It is equally undeniable that rapid developments in areas such as artificial intelligence, machine learning, and cybersecurity also raise fundamental issues as to the future of public policy, regulation, and global governance. It's for this reason that Denmark is a pioneer in the area of techplomacy. Techplomacy is an acknowledgement of the key role that technology and digitalization play and will increasingly play in the future for individuals and societies alike. It's also a recognition of the political and global influence that the tech industry, private industry, has in the 21st century. And as one of the most digitalized countries in the world, Denmark understands the need to rethink the relationship between governments, civil society, and the private sector to preserve the trust and uh, safety of our citizens in the digital space. Conversations like this one happening tonight here at Columbia University, I think, are a step in the right direction uh, as we grapple with these new uh, complexities. And as Danes, we're excited to be part of that debate and share our experience. With that, I wish you all a wonderful evening and enlightened and thought-provoking conversation. Thank you. So I'm delighted to next call um, up to the stage our panelists. I'm going to call out names, but you know who you are, so please come on up. Mikael Hagen-Hess, Director of Invest in Denmark, North America, Denmark's official investment agency under the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Don Thibault, Executive Director of OpenID Foundation, a nonprofit international standardization organization of individuals and companies committed to enabling, promoting, and protecting OpenID. Zia Khan, Vice President for Initiatives and Strategy at the Rockefeller Foundation, which, as you know, is a philanthropy whose mission is to promote the well-being of humanity around the world. Michael Ibach, Chief Analytics Officer for the UN, where he leads a team of business analysts, data scientists, and visualization experts, delivering platforms and solutions to create new and better insights to fulfill the UN's mandate. Tara Nathan, Executive Vice President for Public-Private Partnerships at MasterCard, where she works to create partnerships with development organizations, international financial institutions, corporate foundations, and NGOs. And the moderator is Louise Matakis, staff writer for Wired, where she covers security and social platforms. Thank you, and please enjoy. I think what would be good to start is maybe if each of you said your name again, just because we all kind of came on stage at the same time, um, and maybe a little bit about your role at what, where you work and um, what your company does if people are not familiar. I think we're all familiar with the UN, but uh, maybe not OpenID as much might be helpful. Mikkel Hess from the Danish Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, Director for Invest in Denmark. So basically we talk with a lot of these companies about digitalization and new technologies and why Denmark is an interesting place to have a dialogue. Uh, my name is Don Thibault and I lead two organizations. One is the OpenID Foundation, which focuses on the tools, the um, underlying standards for identity worldwide, and the other organization, the Open Identity Exchange, talks about governance of these same systems. And I found it really fascinating that Danes have created an official ambassador to the tech community in California and in China. It seems to be an acknowledgement of this phenomenon that we live today, where we have companies that are doing things that heretofore only countries did. 
And we also have companies that are doing things that countries cannot do. So it should be an interesting discussion. Hi, I'm Tara Nathan. Uh, I'm with MasterCard. Um, I guess for the context of this discussion, I would introduce MasterCard as um, one of the oldest 50-year-old 50 50-year-old 50 uh, digital identity companies. We do financial identities, frankly, across the globe in an interoperable manner. Uh, my team, I run public-private partnerships, and what that team is all about is it's a division that essentially is building a double bottom line business. So how do we at MasterCard leverage our technology and our capabilities uh, in building these IDs and building these interoperable franchise constructs, the standards and rules, and how do you apply them to create social good, whether it's eliminating poverty, whether it's addressing humanitarian needs, um, building smallholder farmer networks, or uh, expanding ID in the uh, identity in the humanitarian context. My name is Michael Leiber. I'm with the United Nations headquarters here in New York. Uh, I'm the chief of analytics. And we look into this topic of digitality in ways how we can improve the work that the UN does, uh, taking care, for example, of refugees, uh, of people who suffer from epidemic outbreaks. And we provide both tech solutions for our field operations, but at the same time also we look into the policy frameworks that uh, govern our work in that space. Uh, good evening, everyone. I'm Zia Khan. I'm the Vice President for Innovation at the Rockefeller Foundation, which is a philanthropy whose mission is to promote the well-being for humanity around the world. And specifically, one of the areas that I focus on is how can data and technology help us realize that mission? And how can we play a role in being a bridge between the tech sector and applying it to the problems that the private sector, government, and other humanitarian organizations are working on? So I think a good place to start, um, what kind of struck me about CPR and about how it works is that um, you guys are collecting and storing um, a lot of data that here in the US um, is stored by private companies, right? It's stored by data brokers, it's stored by Facebook, um, you know, all sorts of companies have so much information about us in so many disparate places. Um, and sometimes it's hard to access that information or know as a you know individual person what um, you know, different companies have about you and what they know about you and how they're using that information to influence everything from getting your job to what kind of ad you see to, um, you know, what your actual criminal sentence is in court. Um, and I think that it's really interesting to think about how a lot of this data is in Denmark in kind of the government's hands in a lot of cases. Um, I was reading a really funny article about how um, a local newspaper in Denmark tried to get by without having a CPR, and they didn't get very far. Um, there's basically nothing they could do. They couldn't even sign up for a gym membership without having this identification number. It's really you know ubiquitous. Um, but I'm curious, you know, all of you are kind of interested in um, social good and how can we use this data to you know greater to for things like you know helping refugees. Um, what do you do when a lot of that data is in you know hands that you can't control? You know, how do you interface with these tech corporations? How do you figure out the best kind of technological solutions when um, you know that proprietary software or that proprietary information might not be in your hands or it might involve um, you know the kind of diplomacy that you were saying with corporations that are now the size and scope of governments in a lot of ways? You know, how do you how do you manage those relationships and what does that look like? Basically, it, the, the, the story in, in Denmark is, is quite banal. I mean, it's, it's not a debated thing. It's, it's not controversial. Uh, it, it's just something we take for granted. We're born with it. When I was born 50 years ago, almost 50 years ago, within minutes, I got this CBR number. And, and it stayed with me. And it's my access. It's the key to all, this, all the services the, the state provides. 
so we have free education, free healthcare, etc. So anytime I interact with the government or my bank or my insurance company or whatever, I use that. So it's so much part of my, my identity uh, that we don't think about it. Then secondly, there are quite strict protocols surrounding. So whenever we cooperate with companies, share information, or even just public entities, you need to go through a number of security checks and basically refer to some, some kind of third-party authority in order to sh- make sure that these data is not, is not breached. But what you can do with it is so, so interesting. Also from, say, research perspective, perspective, you can regard the Danish population as one cohort where you can basically research on, on the whole Danish society. And instead of having very sort of narrow uh, healthcare uh, research, we know how the, f- the full Danish population develops and we can see which kind of uh, treatment is actually working also in the long perspective. So there's a lot of benefits. And, and yes, as, as we go forward, we will have to, to, to monitor how we deal with, with the, um, with the techni- technological sort of uh, challenges. Because yes, I mean, you cannot construct a system which is foolproof. There will always be avenues into it. So that is one of the things which we will have to look to. But, but one of the things you, you must remember is that the CPR system is, is a key to, I mean, Denmark is basically country of a thousand registries. So it's not one registry, but it's very different registries and each have separate protocols of security. But it's only interesting when you also have the CPR number, the sort of the individual identifier. That's very interesting. Um, it sounds like you guys have not had an Equifax uh, breach. There was a time uh, late last year where there were, in my, you know, in my industry in journalism, there were a bunch of uh, articles about whether or not we should burn the social security number because after Equifax, it felt kind of useless. Um, and that feels very different from the Denmark system, which, you know, there's so much utility in it. <laughs> so good job, you guys. Sounds like it's working. So I think in the US, we pay a price. And it's probably in the trillions of dollars um, over time, conservatively, for not having a unique identifier as the Danes do. We have this kind of faux identifier in the terms of the social security number, which kind of sort of plays that role, but not in a governmental uh, and sanctioned way. So as a result, um, particularly now in an era where there is a decline in, in budgets, federal, state, and local level, and an increased demand for services to the citizen, the only way you can square that is to deliver services online, is to have citizens access governmental services. And you can't do that without solving the fundamental problems of identity. So we haven't solved that in the US. So the price that we pay is just enormous fraud kind of coursing through our tax system, clearly through our healthcare system, and this increased distance between the citizen and, and his and her government online. So we, um, we have this kind of political and social resistance to a unique identifier or a, a digital passport in the US and in other common law countries like the UK, but we pay an enormous price for it. Part of the price is, as you mentioned, 
we push all that data into different private databases, which are, for the most part, defenseless and long since breached. Well, do you think we could do the classic American thing and you know get Facebook to build it or get you know get another corporation to build it? I think that you know we already saw that. I don't know if they're going to uh, move forward it now now that they're kind of um, dealing with all of these privacy scandals. But Facebook wanted to partner with hospitals and get you know anonymized data to try and do research. They're already kind of pushing into these big data areas, and I wonder, um, you know, is the solution going to be through the government the way that it was in Denmark? Well, I think those companies have already built that database. I mean, the databases of all Americans living and dead are, it's, it's not an unusual asset for a small group of companies to have. It's not an unusual asset because it's enormously valuable, that kind of data, and the metadata associated with it, and the increasing amount of analytics and AI technologies that can be applied to that data. So I think the movement of those massive databases into healthcare and other areas is well underway. And I, I would share that, uh, you know, in this context, we have a lot of data and our concern is around who sees the data and what do they do with it. There's hundreds of millions of people who have no data and what they're trying to do is be seen by the system. Uh, and that's where I think there's the real opportunity as well. It's always a double-edged sword. But I wouldn't want to underestimate the benefits of people becoming less private to the government when it comes to delivery of the public services that they're not can you, getting. Can you make that real? Like, give me give me an example. Like, what I'm thinking of right now is how we're adding to the census a question that will ask about uh, your immigration status. And you know, there's a lot of talk about how that will um, be very negative for the healthcare system because it will take a lot of healthcare data and a lot of you know demographic demographic information that we might have otherwise had. But now people are going to be afraid to answer questions and don't want to be part of the census, which could you know shrink a lot of populations and could um, you know distort the data that a lot of researchers rely on. Um, but I think that's one example. But I'd like to hear you know what you kind of sure. think about people coming on being part of the system and being sure. In sure. The data. So I'll give like a, a simple and a more subtle example. So a simple example would be what motivated Adhar in India, which was the government provides lots of food subsidies, lots of fuel subsidies, and as it trickles through all the middlemen, thirty percent of the funds disappear. So here's a way to reach more people and reach them more efficiently. And there's a big cost savings that's uh, uh, supposed to be captured and is being captured in many cases. A more subtle example would be if we look at the refugee situation that we're facing. Uh, we have a lot of people who have tremendous education, who have credit histories, who are ready to integrate into a society, but they don't show up into a new country with all that information being able to be accessed and certified. Uh, and what if they could? Uh, what if everything was digitally you know, enabled on some blockchain technology? You might then find countries competing for refugees because they're such an economic asset versus viewing them as an immediate cost. Um, I'm going to ask blockchain next, so I don't. Mm. Well, we'll get there. But um, I want just for anyone who doesn't know, Aadhaar is the system in India that was breached. Um, it's their biometric data system, which has you know over a billion people on it. Um, and it was recently breached, um, and the kind of understanding is that identities were being sold on WhatsApp for about eight dollars. So it was a real um, scandal. But I want to you know go get back to our panelists. If I might just add on to the benefits, we, we must put this in perspective uh, today. More than a billion people still have no ID at all in the world. Out of these, uh, about 20% are children below five years old that have not been registered at birth. So the benefits for them are fundamental in getting an ID. 
and fundamental in terms of survival, education, access to healthcare, access to financial services. Um, so from a, from a UN perspective, we have to rely on governments to provide us the data that we need or that we can validate in a refugee situation, for example. So we put a lot of emphasis also in strengthening the capacity working with governments in a refugee situation. The responsibility is with the host country of the refugees to register them. Uh, the UN comes in when the host country cannot cope or when they need support, so we provide technical support as well. And as today, we have uh, about registered about four and a half million refugees worldwide. Uh, including uh, uh, biometric uh, characteristics. And uh, for them, the, the ability to, to um, use their new identity to access services, public services or private services, is absolutely key. And just to, to quote a, a, a Congolese refugee, 43, 43 years old, he said, now I am somebody for the first time. And this is the kind of context where I think we can make tremendous impact with this kind of initiatives. Do you want to say something, Tara? Sure. <laughs> I'd like to hear, um, especially, uh, you know, you're kind of working at the nexus of the private and the public um, yeah. conversation of these issues. I'd like to hear kind of what it's like to be a for-profit company, but to be, you know, concerned about these same issues. So, I mean, I, I guess the first thing I'd want to do is unpack this word of identity a bit. Um, I think it would be a huge mistake if we sort of dove into this dialogue thinking that if we steered the dialogue towards the boogeyman, whether that boogeyman is private sector and Facebook or whether it's the government who's in there to sort of, you know, steal your identity and use it for nefarious purposes. Let's just, I want to take a step back on what actually an identity is, right? If you deconstruct it, it involves many different things, and I think we've touched across many of them. You do have this notion of a, a unique identifier, which is the other concept. Then you have um, some sort of form factor. It can be you know, a card, it can be a, a, a thumbprint, it can be a passport, it can be things like that. Typically what that is, though, is it's entitling you to services, and I think that's why we're interested in this. I mean, there's a good that comes of it. I think what we're talking about now, though, is there's also an aspect of there's data associated with that identity. And, it, and now that we're in a digital age, that data, it's not just who you are, but it's what you do. And the what you do tracks the who you are. And that's where we're starting to get concerned and where this dialogue, I think, is emerging from. But I think that dialogue would not be complete without talking about the immense amount of work that happens through the private sector, frankly, um, around things like biometric authentication, around security standards, around things like we were talking, Z and I were talking before this, around GDPR. We, in MasterCard, as an example, have, I mean, we have a very well-established business that's all around protecting and anonymizing data for years and years and years. That's what we do, right? Um, when we take your financial data and transact it with this merchant, that merchant never knows who you are and you never know who they are. You never trade banking information. How does that happen? That happens because we have a lot of expertise and experience in anonymizing data and keeping it secure and ensuring that that, that that information, that only relevant information is passed when it's needed to. So I think um, it's just a mistake to, to jump from identity, big bag bo boogeyman, grabbing all my data and then you know gonna run away with it and do, do nasty things. There are um, 
there are companies and there are industries that are centered around creating security and creating uh, norms and standards um, uh, to keep our data secure. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I think in my industry, it doesn't become a story until there's a breach. You know, it's not, I think a conversation that we're having now is that, um, you know, why is, are we not criticizing Facebook in the same way they're criticizing um, Google? Or that we're criticizing, why are we criticizing Facebook and not criticizing Google? And part of that is that Google has never suffered a similar breach, right? Or MasterCard has not suffered a similar breach. I think it is important to have, you know, a conversation about the, the benefit of identity for, you know, a Congolese man who has never had, you know, something to tie his identity. I think it's that where the, boogeyman lies is kind of in the the middle, right? Like where, where do we get the identity and who is controlling it and what what does that information constitute? And I think especially as we move into um, you know, web 3.0 where a lot of stuff is algorithmically um, generated and we don't necessarily understand where that algorithm comes from. Or I think as we move into, you know, like you were saying, like blockchain technologies and other sorts of um, new innovations, whether, you know, the people on the ground and the consumers understand how that's being created. Because I think with a passport or something like CPR, where it's like a symbol, you know, there's a biometric passport and there's a person, which is very different from something like China, where you're getting this three-digit number that is comprised of all sorts of, you know, actions that you've taken in your life that may influence all sorts of, you know, aspects of your experience as a citizen in that country. And you might not understand how your score got docked or whatever. I think we're moving into an age where your identity is not so static and it changes over time. Um, and I think understanding how those changes are going to happen and how people are going to understand those changes is very interesting. Um, and I'm kind of curious what you think about, you know, about CPR and about other these other kinds of technologies and what you guys are looking at in the future. You know, what will your identity be online in the future when all of your government services in the U.S. and other countries are online? You know, is that going to be influenced by your social media? Is that going to be something decentralized because you're doing it through a blockchain? You know, I talk to a lot of people who think that's possible. Is it going to be a much more private age because of things like GDPR? Um, and if you guys don't know, GDPR is a sweeping privacy regulation that will go into effect in the EU on the 25th of May. There's been a lot of talk in the tech industry about how um, it's changing uh, basically how most online companies operate. That's why you're getting so many emails that say that uh, Airbnb's terms of service are updating, if you've gotten all those emails from every online service you use. But yeah, I'm curious what you guys think, you know, the future is. You know, for something like MasterCard, you're relying on a lot of encryption, you know, like is quantum computing going to disrupt that? You know, these are a lot of questions, but I'm curious from all of you what you think the future of identity looks like. Well, I think the GDPR thing is interesting because as when Zuck gave his interview a couple of weeks ago, he was interview, it's a nice way to put it. <laughs> it was as close as we're going to come. Um, so he said he was sorry. And then he said that they were going to do new things, new privacy things. And it turns out that the new privacy things is that Facebook is going to follow the rule of the law in G with GDPR in Europe, um, not so in other jurisdictions. So I think that is a fact of life, that there may be some regulatory um, wind in the sails that, that could be globalized. That remains to be seen, particularly given the absence of leadership here in the US around these kinds of issues. But you also mentioned the breach situation, which it, I think is kind of a, a level set, that the massive amounts of breaches, those that have been publicized and unpublicized, it's hard to think of a institution that has not been breached. And MasterCard? That, 
<laughs> no, I'm just, no, I'm just kidding. Is one that hasn't been breached. Yeah. But no, I think, but I agree. I mean, I think it's become really ubiquitous and it's everything from, you know, smaller companies to, um, to something like Equifax and really become very, you know, synonymous. Right. Equifax is a third of the um, breach of the U.S. government and its personnel files and nearly not as, um, not quite as um, important as the breach of the NSA and their tools. So the tools are out there. All the data is out there. It's just a question of what governance systems, what kind of networks can survive in this post-breach um, world that we live in. Well, I, I think the concept of breaches is very interesting. And, and I think, you know, as we go into these new technologies, we're, we're going to have to change our mindsets. One of my colleagues says there's two types of organizations, those that have been breached and those that don't know they've been breached. And so I think we're just going to have to live in a world where we're assuming these breaches are happening. Then what are our mechanisms or procedures for recovering for that? Similarly, I think we have to really rethink the concept of privacy. Uh, you know, a philosopher friend of mine argues that privacy is a recent urban phenomena in the scale of how we've lived our lives and such. And so we may just need to rethink, well, what does it mean when we have a permanent record of our trail of our activities that people can access? Is that something that we consider within the sphere of what we want to be private? You know, what is it? So there's all these kind of interesting questions that are more about society and how we see ourselves as people that I think are intertwined with technology questions. And I think those ideas will have to evolve as the technology evolves. I, I would add, I'd go back to the notion that Don raised about standards and rules. I think the future of identity is the past of identity, which is around security standards and rules. And how do you take things like, if you take the analog of the credit card industry, um, you know, it's a network of a number of different, of thousands and thousands, of millions and millions, actually billions of cardholders around the globe connected. And the reason it's safe and secure is because of these standards and rules around how data is stored, around where it's stored, around what kinds of technology can access, about how you connect into a central database. Every single aspect of that is sort of governed by these standards and rules and creating a franchise construct that, that sort of ensures that security. So I think that's one notion, right? And how do you export that to things like healthcare access, to access to education or access to any, you know, the other, uh, truism about security is a network is only as strong as its weakest link, right? So typically that's where, um, and, and we know this in our industry, um, that it's always that last mile or that, you know, the last person who's accessing it that's the inroad to the network. I think, I think that's one thing uh, about sort of a trend. I think the other trend um, that I think Zia mentioned is around privacy. And I think that's going to be an interesting aspect. I mean, we're doing a lot of work around uh, permissioning is the way we, th we think about it. So permissioning and privacy. So it's not that data is bad. It's that how do you take that data that's associated with who I am and give me the power to decide who gets to see it and who doesn't, right? So if you take that notion of what we do at MasterCard at a global level and decentralize it down to the individual, we at MasterCard say, okay, if you're an issuing bank, you get to see this amount. You get to see a yes or a no. You don't get to see the person's card number. And if you're at this person, you get to see um, that, they're, that they're qualified for a transaction. You don't get to know what their home address is, et cetera, et cetera. How do we start to develop, and we're developing solutions around identity that are of that vein um, uh, for application in a humanitarian context, which says it gives the refugee, as an example, the capability to get an ID, 
go to one NGO, let's say it's you know um, UNHCR, who's actually providing them with their home, their house, they ask very sensitive data and very sensitive information. They'll ask things like, what's your religious affiliation? What's your political party? How many children do you have? I mean, it's very sensitive information. And it's our opinion that that same individual who goes, goes then to get a bag of rice for food for dinner that evening shouldn't have to turn over all that sensitive data to that, you know, to that next agency. So we've created technology that enables that beneficiary to permission that and to say, I agree to share this data with you, but only this data with you. So I think that's another sort of trend. Yeah, around consent, I think, is the, is the other kind of synonym for permissions. Yeah, I just want to echo this. Uh, this concept of self-sovereign uh, management of data is key. And uh, we, we're also looking to mobility. So uh, in a refugee situation, people move around. They move across country borders, they move around language borders. And having uh, the ID follow you would be absolutely key in, in, in succeeding. And um, so for us, uh, I agree the, the, the sensitivity of the data is absolutely key, but empowering the individual to choose selectively which data to share and which context is absolutely key. I, I think that's the, the key concept here. I think data privacy is a bit of a dead end, but agency or control over data, which is the fundamental thing that um, informs the data example and also extends to the work of the UNHCR and others with displaced people is you want to give people not privacy, but you want to give them agency over the data about them so that the Syrian doctor living in Calais, he's not asking for privacy, he's asking for an identity so that he can participate in the economic life of, of his host country or where he ultimately settles. So to me, shifting the conversation from what do we do about data and how do we secure our data to me is um, mythic, but how do we control and provide agency over the data about us, whether that's in a government database or a private sector database, and how do we apply that to solve the problems that society must face like displaced people? And economic empowerment, to me, is the, is the path that is a really rich discussion. And if, if I can chip in with sort of the lessons from, from Denmark is, first of all, coming from, from the identity and, and looking back in history, uh, 50 years ago, when we started the CPR system, uh, it was the first time that all individuals got their own individuality and sort of was registered individual, the meaning that basically until then you had, everybody was registered in the household they were sort of living, and from then on everybody had their own identity, which meant enormously for women, children, and their rights in, in society. So in that sense, I mean, even though it was a bureaucratic thing for tax, it was also sort of pivotal for, for the social development in, in, in Denmark. The second thing is that if anything we've done right is the separation of information, that we sort of put it in small boxes, which is fairly difficult to, 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 to collect. And whether you do use blockchain or whatever protocols you have in, in, in MasterCard, that is more or less what you're also describing, that you, you separate the information. You don't bridge unless you have 
a sort of a very secure protocol on how to do that. And that is one of the, I think, lessons from, from the Danish history is that we have these protocols where we separate information so you don't get full access. I think now that we've moved from the boogeyman breach to the consent permissions angle, which I think is a better place to be, um, you know, I struggle as a journalist to communicate that consent and for people to understand the relationship that they're having with um, someone who they're giving their data to. And I think it's, um, you know, I'm curious about what you think the solutions are for the education around that consent. Because I think I struggle a lot because I tell people that, you know, your data is being sold here, your data is being used in this way, and here's how you can change that relationship or you can empower yourself. And then they don't want to because they're just kind of like, well, it's out there. I don't really know what to do about it. But I think, you know, for the next generation, they're hopefully going to be, um, you know, able to take control over that data and do something about it. But I don't know and I wonder what, how we're going to message that and how we're going to ensure people know, you know, the refugee just getting the passport for his first time or, you know, someone getting um, their first credit card, you know, knowing when and how and how to communicate effectively as leaders, um, how, to, how to empower people to manage that relationship with their own data. Well, again, Danish perspective. Uh, basically, we see it as a social contract. And you could argue that, I mean, whether you share it with your hospital in Denmark or you share it with Facebook, it's, it's the same social contract. We get some kind of service from the provider and you share your information. But, but what I have experienced coming here to the US is we see it as basically a sort of an intrinsic social contract but not in a legalistic way. Whereas in, in the US, you always end up signing these sort of tons of documents with, which nobody read to, to the very end, and, and which is very good in, in some kind of legal battle, but is not uh, sort of helping in understanding where your information is going or, or what your situation is. You know, this isn't a direct answer to your question, which I think is a really fascinating question. It reminds me a little bit when uh, e-commerce started. And I can remember people were really nervous about putting their credit card numbers online and entering it. And uh, a friend of mine pointed out, but we're totally comfortable with giving our card to a waiter who disappears in a back room for five minutes and then comes back with our card. Does it always go well? <laughs> and, but we don't even question that. And, and so I think we're entering kind of something similar. We, we have a habit with new technologies uh, to be unclear about the possibilities of what they're doing, good or bad. But there actually are many ways that we are sharing our ID right now and sharing our, our data right now in a non-technical way that you know we just need to be conscious of that this could actually be an improvement or, or new threats as well. Anyone else got a solution to this problem? <laughs> I don't know if there's solutions, but the, the common problem or the common solution set is not unlike you see in Visa and MasterCard over the, over the years, and that I think you'll see also in these identity systems that cross jurisdictions, as well as distributed ledger technologies. The common denominators are they're widely distributed systems, they're multinational, they cross multiple jurisdictions, and they're self-regulatory. So I think we're seeing the rise of more globally networked systems, not unlike MasterCard and Visa, that will be taking on more and more of the responsibility for managing these massive databases and the analytics and the AI that um, will be bringing that metadata to life. So I think we're entering a new era of these kind of cross 
national, cross-global um, self-regulatory body. And that really does kind of turn the model on its head, where you have, again, companies doing things that governments cannot do by themselves. Um, I think what it, it has the potential of doing is returning agency to the, to the individual, to the consumer, to the citizen. And there's some wonderful work being done by Doc Searles and others that are trying to flip that paradigm of educating the consumer, not to some broad sense of privacy, but a notion of agency, that there is a bargain with Facebook. I'll give you my data if you give me this compelling user experience back. I think people are getting smarter at the terms of that agreement, and we're seeing it shift now with the GDPR discussions, the, in banking the PSD2 discussions, where there's a new kind of trans-global order asserting itself. I hope so, yeah, it would be, I just, my concern, I guess, is that uh, the incentives, I think, for Visa and MasterCard were very clear. Like, I think there was a very clear economic incentive to build that system, which is you know, incredibly impressive that I can go fly to Peru and use the same you know, MasterCard that I have here, and it works, which is you know, really incredible. Um, and I think that you know, uh, the Danish perspective, they you know, had this uh, system that was really you know, made a lot of sense for them to build. I just wonder, having kind of a cross-national ID system that everyone can use, I just worry uh, what that incentive will look like and what the incentive will be for the companies. Um, that's kind of my question, but I think in a minute we're gonna uh, take some questions from you guys. Am I allowed to call them, is that right? <laughs> okay, go for it. I've been very confused by this discussion because I think you're talking about many different types of databases. Um, Louise is clearly talking about the social network, Facebook, friends kind of database. Um, you've been talking about national identity, passport type databases. My question for Denmark is, we're clearly, I think, what is in the CPR? Is it only information about interactions with the government or does it include and is this national identi identifier used for all let's say commercial transactions do you also have links to all your mastercard bills to every time you've checked into a hotel or rented a car does it link to facebook or is that a completely different system does it link to your cell phone so it also has all your what's in there because I assume the inference is that the social contract you're talking about is everything that's in the system can be used and people do not give consent for use of their medical rec records for research purposes, which probably you'd never get in the United States if you ever asked anybody, even if they were anonymized. But what is in the Danish system and how do you safeguard it and how do you compare yourself to someplace like Estonia that uses blockchain? I'm not the expert of Estonia, so I will leave that. But basically, the, the, the CPR system is a fairly small registry where we have everybody in Denmark. So it's a who's who in Denmark. And it doesn't contain much more than name, birth, where you live, that kind of thing. And then we have more or less a thousand registries for different kind of illness, for your criminal registers, your education, your tax, your whatever. And then you use this unique identifier to access whatever registry. So when tax authorities want to tax you, 
they know who you are and they know what you've been paid by your employer, etc., etc. Or when you go to the hospital, you can take out, they know your medical history and they can take out your blood uh, type or whatever is needed. So, but it's, it's a key more than a registry where you have everything together. So, but it's all the boring stuff. We never ever register people's point of view or interest or what they read or how they vote or that kind of thing. So that you wouldn't find anywhere. It's not linked to Facebook or whatever social media platform. Um, so there's clearly limits to it, but still you have all these sort of physical data uh, about people. And then for a bank, if you want to have a bank account, to be certain who, who you are, you have to give them your, your uh, CPR number. That doesn't mean the bank get access to your medical records or the criminal registry or whatever, but it makes sure that you are who you are and they know where you live. Again, there are very strict protocols on, and you need a very sort of, you need a reason which is a common good, or you need permission from the individual in order to share that kind of information. You, you can say that this data is safe now based on you know, the rules and the protocols that you've established, but you can't guarantee that that's going to be safe five or 10 years from now. Uh, uh, in the United States, we recently elected a right of center uh, president, and he's eliminating uh, regulations that people once thought protected them uh, for various, in various you know, uh, agencies and things. Um, that could happen anywhere. So best practice in corporate America or enter global enterprises is a zero trust environment. So best practice at Microsoft or at any uh, most major banks is that you don't trust anybody and that you don't trust anything. So you're constantly verifying or authenticating the people, places, and things that are in your enterprise um, because that's a reflection of the world that we live in where there's no securing of data, there is simply gradients of how trustworthy that data is. Uh, so I'm interested um, in the fact that <clears throat> obviously the conversation is focused on data, but one of the things that data implies is a higher value for things that can be measured. So I'm wondering what part of this conversation should be thinking about the decisions that need to be made around the value of things that cannot so easily be measured. For instance, things like trust or character virtues in assessing a person, um, how do we deal with the fact that centralized systems surrounding data will inherently privilege those things that can be measured more easily at the expense of things that cannot? It's a great question, and that question is being obscured by the avalanche of data that we are self-reporting. So if you have a cell phone in your pocket, there's, I think, 257 signals that that cell phone is broadcasting about its status and its relationship to you. So how do we create trust? And to me, we have to look at trust in something of a mechanistic way where we have a set of relationships between different parties that allow us to transact at a very high volume and velocity and variety. That's a characteristic of the Visa and MasterCard systems where we trust these systems enough so that we can transact. But we all, always are mindful that 
that transaction comes at a cost of privacy, of some friction, and the inequities of um, uh, how we profit from the monetization of this data that's f flowing so freely in both the dark web and the commercial systems we know. Thank you very much. Um, I wanted to see if you could comment on the distinction between sort of the origin of these, these use cases. I mean, in the Danish example, they never predicted that we would be in this present. They thought this would be a useful tool, bureaucratic tool, as you said, um, that you're now examining what can be done with. And there's a strong social, social contract and safeguards. In the MasterCard analogy, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, it started, you started providing the service of banking, and this is a way to make that uh, you know, more accessible for your customer. In the social media, Facebook, the, the commodity is our data. They're selling it. So what is, what is the distinction between having this conversation when what we're, you know, they're making money off, off this information? Is that ever the case in the Danish example? Or are you selling MasterCard, our data, to third parties? Can you just comment on the distinction in that? I mean, in, in the Danish case, we, we don't as such sell the information. But yes, we do go into cooperation with, with private companies, especially in, in, in the medical field, uh, where we then cooperate on, on research. But then it's uh, anonymized uh, data. But but still, we, we, we do it. and But we do it always with a view to the greater good of, of the population. So we're not monetizing as such, but, but we, of course, want to use the data to make the society better, to help our citizens. I think that question touches on the issue that I think was wisely pointed out. We're talking about lots of different kinds of data uh, in this conversation. You know, part of your question reminded me of the analog to GPS, where GPS as a system answered one question, where are you? And based on that question or answer, they're able to innovate lots of things on top of that. Uh, similarly, there's potential around ID if you think of it answering a question of who are you? Uh, and once you have that answer, you can innovate in lots of ways. Now, the directions of those innovations are unpredictable. There's lots of good, there's lots of bad. Um, so what builds on top of this and what kind of snowball effect there is pretty unclear and how that creates value is unclear as well. Right, the, there was the piece of the internet that was, wasn't built in that answered the question of who are you? Or are you who you say you are? But part of the answer to your question I think is cultural where in some societies and some cultures, your identity um, is assigned to you by the state, not so in others. So there's a really radical difference between ident national identity systems in um, common law countries, the US, Britain, New Zealand, Australia, etc., and and Napoleonical um, countries where your identity is assigned to you at birth. And mind you, um, I think of identity as kind of the um, label on a bag of attributes, and it's the attributes that are monetized to the fairly well in commercial systems around and used by government authorities like China to maintain uh, its social order um, by assigning not only an identity but a, a social desirability to score to each of its citizens. I think it's because, and I think maybe this is the point of the question and, and several other points that are being made here, which is we're using one term, identity, to actually refer to a range of actually different things. On the one hand, there is the unique identifier, which I think Don has referenced, and that's just a number. That's just an, a way to, an obscure way to say, 
instead of saying Tara, Don, Zia, et cetera, we're saying one, two, three, four, or A, B, C, D, right? That's one aspect of the identity. I think we've then talked about there is, um, there are physical manifestations of that identity, whether that becomes, you know, Tara Nathan at facebook.com, that's a physical manifestation now in the virtual world. It can be a card. Um, nowadays it can be a phone, it can be many different things. Part of identity is also the security mechanisms that surround that. And then lastly, there's the data that it puts off, right? All these things together are our identity, but why do we do it? We do it because it gives us stuff. And I think you've, you know, the reason we obscure Tara Nathan is because it helps me get something. Now, whether that something is the ability to go in and get educated at a school or whether it enables me in some countries to go in and get immunized and get my, you know, um, get my health records. In some cases, that data is actually used for very important purposes. We do interventions, for example, in, in, in Pakistan and working with Gilead and working with um, Gavi Alliance and PEPFAR to actually track the vaccinations that people receive. That's critical because what we're finding in hep C, as an example, People are taking the first dose or taking the second. They're not taking the third. That's not being tracked. And because the vaccination regimen is not being tracked, they're not being immunized correctly. So that's a great example of where there is an identifier, there is a card, and then there's data that's being put out. But it's very critical. And it's because that person wants to stay healthy. In the MasterCard example, it's because I want to, you know, buy some cute shoes. I don't know. Maybe when I was in college, it's because I wanted to get into a bar. Um, but it's all because we want access to services. Well, I guess I'll just leave on that point. I think that was a really great way to end, you know, kind of bring it back to like, what is this notion of identity? And it's really complicated to kind of unpack, especially when it's in so many different kinds of databases that are run by so many different kinds of authorities. Um, I hope we got somewhere. Uh, thank you guys so much for coming. Thank you guys for being here. Um, and I think we're gonna move on to our next panel. So thank you so much, panel one. Lots of different food for thought that I think is going to be explored by panel two. So I'd love to welcome panel two. Up here, Rebecca McKinnon, Director of Ranking Digital Rights, an initiative at New America that is working to set global standards for how companies um, in the information communications technology sector should respect freedom of expression and privacy. So. That'll be an interesting perspective here. Jacob Mchagamba, founder and CEO of Justitia, Denmark's first judicial think tank that promotes the rule of law and fundamental human rights. John Paul Farmer, director of technology and civic innovation for Microsoft, where he leads hands-on engagement with governments, nonprofits, for-profits, academic institutions, startups, and civic hackers. Amanda Graham, co-founder and chief services officer for Blockchain for Change, a technology company specializing in the implementation of blockchain technologies to advance transparent and accountable social impact projects. And David Park, Dean of Strategic Initiatives, Arts and Sciences, and faculty member at the Data Science Institute of Columbia University. And finally, Natasha Singer, a technology reporter in the business section of the New York Times, uh, where she covers consumer privacy. Thank you so much. So welcome, everybody. That was really enlightening and I think a great background to the next panel where um, we'll be asking some questions about the things we heard. Do you guys just want to each say like two sentences about who you are and what you do before we start the grilling? I'm Rebecca McKinnon. 
Um, I run the uh, a project um, housed at New America called Rankin Digital Rights, as Alana was just describing. We evaluate the world's largest internet, mobile, and telecommunications companies on their commitments and policies affecting users' privacy, security, and freedom of expression. Uh, we've also done uh, some other work that relates to how you benchmark and evaluate human rights and privacy uh, in other systems, so we've we've done some some work with Consumer Reports on Internet of Things and, and security and how you how you evaluate companies and products in that context. And we've also done a little bit of scoping research with Omidyar on digital ID systems, particularly for funders thinking about funding digital ID related projects in the developing world, and what are the standards that one should consider the questions one ought to be asking about what might constitute a privacy and human rights respecting digital ID system as opposed to not. And it turns out to be a very complicated question to answer. Yeah, my name is uh, Jakob Mschengammer, or Jacob to you, perhaps. Um, so I'm the founder and executive director of a think tank in Copenhagen focusing on rule of law, human rights. But currently, I'm also a visiting scholar here at Columbia at the uh, Global Freedom of Expression Center, where I'm producing a podcast on the history of free speech, where this issue is also actually also uh, quite uh, relevant, uh, because free speech also has something to do with uh, what kind of data governments may have about you. Hey, everybody. John Paul Farmer. I'm the director of Microsoft Cities. We focus on how we use technology for public good. Uh, specifically in an urban context that involves a lot of partnering, a lot of prototyping, the occasional panel. And uh, in my spare time, when I can find some, I'm up here on campus teaching at the School of International Public Affairs. I graduated from the business school, and yet somehow I had never been in this building before. Glad to be here. Welcome to Columbia. Hi, everyone. I'm Amanda Graham. I come here from two perspectives. One is I just finished my master's in human rights at Columbia University, uh, where I wrote my thesis on blockchain and human rights. Uh, so I have that perspective. And then also I'm the co-founder of Blockchain for Change. Uh, so we are a company that's leveraging blockchain in one sentence uh, to create a sustainable ecosystem of services and clients. So in our um, from our perspective, it's the underserved and underbanked. So we are currently seven weeks into our first pilot, which is in the Bronx. And I'll probably get more into it later. Uh, I'm David Park. Uh, so in addition to my sort of administrative duties, I wear two hats that's probably relevant for this conversation. So one, I'm a member of the Data Sciences Institute. Uh, and the second, I'm a member of the Committee for Global Thought. Uh, and in the fall, I actually taught a course called The Futures of the Global Economy. So we sort of looked at this notion of if kind of the digital um, identity infrastructure is built um, and actually the ownership of the data starts going to the individual, what does the economy look like in that regard? Thank you. So in the previous panel, we heard about the Danish model as a kind of platonic ideal of government-issued identity. But we have Jakob, who's you know lived through this. And um, we also heard that there's never been an Equifax in Denmark, but I read that more than 5 million uh, ID numbers and health information, the number, sorry, the health information and ID numbers of more than 5 million Danes ended up in a Chinese visa company. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it's like as a citizen um, to be part of that Danish ID system. 
Yeah, so uh, I, I agree on the one hand that it's been a, a very good system in the sense that it allocates resources and knowledge very efficiently, uh, and it's also a goldmine for, for researchers. But in the digital age, it may not, at least it's, it's, it's been vulnerable. As you said, 5.3 million CPR numbers, in addition to health records, were sent on unencrypted CDs to a Chinese company. We've also had an IT service provider that accidentally leaked 900,000 CPR numbers online, so you could, uh, so you could uh, access them. And, 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 and there's been other leaks. Actually, we had an example where a, sort of an anti-surveillance activist uh, obtained the CPR number of our then prime minister, and then he produced these T-shirts with her face and her CPR number <laughs> underneath. <laughs> so that was maybe not the best advertising for the, for the, for the, for the uh, CPR uh, number. Um, um, I would say that um, an, another thing that we see in Denmark is that big, big data uh, plays a, a, a huge role and, and, um, and the CPR number as part of that because Denmark is a universal welfare state so 80% of the adult population re, uh, receives at least one benefit and so there's, we've basically centralized uh, all these uh, entitlements into one agency that has to make sure that if you're entitled to uh, an entitlement, you get it, but also that you don't basically try to fool and abuse the system. But what they've done uh, then is that they basically have access to billions of pieces of data about all Danes, uh, including, uh, including it could be financial records in, in some cases without your, your approval. And then they have algorithms that make lists of suspicious patterns uh, and that can then be sort of taken out and then you can uh, try to say well does this guy really live here is this are these uh, persons are really married so are they uh, entitled uh, to to, uh, to to the benefits uh, that they uh, receive and our, my organization did a report on this because no one really knew the principles involved you know what are they looking at and and uh, then the minister had to go out and say well these are some of the things that are uh, involved but I would still say it's a very open question whether this agency lives up to for instance data protection rules and the European Charter of, of Fundamental Rights and the GDPR which, which, which comes in and then I would say there's also a movement towards what I would call scope creep in the sense that you use data for other purposes than what they were initially collected for. So uh, the, the government recently proposed that municipalities be allowed to merge different registers in order to detect sort of an early warning for child abuse. So you look at health records, you look at uh, records on substance abuse, you know, did you skip going to the dentist or doctor's appointments and all these things and then Assumably, you have like an algorithm can say, well, this uh, uh, is a pattern, well-known pattern for, for child abuse. And, you know, no one wants to be, uh, no one wants to see children uh, abused. But this was actually the first time for, 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 in a while where I've seen Dane sort of say, mm, wait a minute. Normally, we have a lot of trusts for good reasons, I would say, in, in, in government and, 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 and in the public sector. But here people say, well... Are we are we approaching you know a more of a Chinese system where you know basically basically if you want to be really blunt, this is a score of citizens you know how dependable are you with your own kids and then you know based on whatever this algorithm says someone may come knocking at your door and say are, are you abusing your children um, and and of course the the danger here may be that okay so that's one thing but you could use it for any other purposes and. There are certain opt-outs in the GDPR in Article 23, and the government has basically 
uh, interpreted them quite broadly. So they're saying, we want to be able to use data for other purposes than they're collecting, and we don't want parliamentary consent. We just want that decision to be taken and at, at an administrative level. So, so I don't want to say that, that, that Denmark is not uh, China. Denmark is ranked number one when it comes to rule of law in, in the world, uh, and is certainly among the best uh, liberal democracies uh, in the world. But there are uh, concerns uh, that I think are uh, important. So, so, so CPR 2.0 uh, might have to undergo you know, significant uh, changes if we are to meet here in, in 50 years and celebrate uh, the, uh, the 100th uh, anniversary, which uh, with uh, new technology we might all be able to, to do, maybe even look as we do now. I, I want to come back to you questions from now about how the new European data protection law might impact that. But Rebecca, you've been looking at what kind of conditions are needed in a country to have uh, a kind of government-issued identification system that complies with human rights and the right to privacy. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, we did some initial scoping research that kind of led us to a lot more questions, like to, to, to question whether you actually want a di government-controlled uh, digital ID system in the first place, and I know, uh, but then the question is, what, who controls it, and can you trust them anymore? Um, but, but yeah, I mean, the, the conditions are, for example, you need strong data protection law that's enforced by an independent body, <laughs> right? You, you, you need uh, oversight. Because what this is this is ultimately about is power, right? This is about uh, power over the allocation of resources, power over who you are perceived to be and how you are defined, um, and who has that power, and in what way can that power be abused, and when that power is abused, does anyone even know? And do you know who actually, can you actually attribute the abuse? Um, do you actually know which layer of company and government actually committed the abuse, right? Um, and, uh, and then can you get redress and are there consequences to the abusers, right? Um, if you can't have those things, then you're not gonna have accountability. Then, then you're not gonna have governance of a society that can remain self-governing, frankly. Um, and, uh, and even in a very utopian society like Denmark, it's a challenge. Uh, but you know, we started to come up with a very long list of things, right? So it's data protection law, it's oversight, it's when, it, but you also, you, you also need kind of very robust research and stakeholder engagement in, okay, how is this playing out? What's actually happening to people as this is deployed? Is it actually achieving the ends that you, that you assumed it would? Is there enough research going into what the problem really is you're trying to solve and whether the, 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 the solution is, that's being proposed is actually a solution to the problem um, or if, if it's just something that someone's trying to sell? Um, you know, this, there needs to be robust public debate, education, and understanding about what it is that's happening and what choice people actually have. Um, and uh, that, that also there, it, the purpose, you know, you cannot have mission creep, right? So, so the government has to be very clear if, if you have a government ID system, this is the purpose. And there needs to be robust debate around what the purpose is. There should be legislation around this purpose, um, and there should be consequences if the purpose 
is extended without not just consent of the user, but consent of society and, and, and the governing system, right? Um, and uh, so in a lot of countries, you're seeing ID being rolled out and the purpose kind of sort of being extended in various ways and IDs being linked to, to provision of services that weren't necessarily always the intent. So, you know, in India with Aadhaar, you know, Aadhaar is sort of the whipping boy of, of, of people who are concerned about digital ID, but um, people trying, in, in a number of places in India, people with HIV AIDS trying to access free treatment have been required to present their Aadhaar number, and then they avoid treatment because they don't want their Aadhaar number linked to the fact that they have HIV AIDS because that might then be implicated in other situations uh, in employment or, or other things that, you know, will, will go very badly for them. And so there's no trust. Um, and um, so, so how do you build this in a way where there's sufficient kind of public consensus around what it is, that there's sufficient oversight mechanisms um, I think part of the problem, you know, and, and again, sort of as we did this research, our, our questions just were continuously, you know, came, th this is a hard problem, um, even, even in a very well-developed country, that do our legislative and legal systems, are they actually fit for purpose for these kinds of technologies that we're now looking to de deploy to really hold accountable all the different layers of actors and all the different ways in which technology is de deployed that then affects your well-being and your relationship with the rest of the society. Um, you know, there's going to need to be an innovation, I think, in a lot of different ways, not just technically with blockchain, but in terms of governance uh, and in terms of education um, that uh, we're very a long way from having. But since you brought up innovation, um, we, there was this great comment um, in the previous panel about how companies are now taking on the role of governments in certain ways. And I'm interested because I know Microsoft is working on identity. Um, can you tell us about what, what you're doing? I can tell you some of it. Okay. How's that? So I think one of the, the really important questions that was brought up on the prior panel was, what do we mean when we say identity? And uh, the way I think of it personally, you can take this or leave it, the way I think of it is in two ways. There's access and then there are attributes. So sometimes we just want to know, am I John Paul Farmer? And does John Paul Farmer have access to X? That's, that's all we need to know. We don't need to know more than that. Uh, other times, though, we actually want to understand education credentials. We want to understand health records, biometrics. So those are specific attributes. That's uh, a deeper context of who that person is and their identity. And so at Microsoft, one of the things we're doing using blockchain technology is uh, really upgrading what Microsoft Authenticator is. This is an app that lets you sign into a bunch of different websites and web products. But we're really thinking about how this can be an encrypted store of some of those attribute, some of that attribute data about you interoperable, so combinable with other stores that you could you could choose wherever you want. And then simply the, the basic identifier can be stored on-chain. So to those in the room who are familiar with blockchain technology, uh, distributed ledger technology, there are private and public blockchains. Uh, public blockchains 
I would say are generally accepted to have a little bit more promise simply because of the, the number of participants. Um, I should clarify that for certain uses, but when we're talking about something as, as a fundamental as identity that needs to go across borders, having a private uh, chain controlled by an intermediary probably doesn't really revolutionize it the way, the way we're thinking of. And so, so this is a project that's going on right now. Other projects that Microsoft's working on are around refugees and making sure that refugees working with the UN and Accenture and ID2020 uh, can have access to an identity so that they can move across borders. So as was mentioned earlier, maybe someday countries will be competing to let in refugees as opposed to competing to keep them out. Um, and one thing I'll mention is in my prior life before Microsoft, I worked in the federal government here in the United States and I worked on a project called Blue Button. And Blue Button, very simple idea, empower people with their own interoperable health data. Anyone who here has moved from one job to another and from one hospital system to another, it can be very hard to get your own data out. And this is why it's so important, this idea of self-sovereign identity, where you, the user, the individual person controls it. And so we had that concept a number of years back, essentially right after uh, Satoshi wrote the first Bitcoin white paper when it really wasn't on most people's radar screens. And so we didn't use blockchain for this, for this uh, blue button tool, but it now serves 150 million Americans. Half of the country can get some of their health data through this uh, simple interface in a way that really allows a human being to interoperate with the, the system of health data. And if we were doing that today, I know we would be using blockchain. And as a technology, it is not mature. There's a whole bunch of work that has to be done. But when you think about the potential that it has to empower individuals with their own data, and as uh, Zia mentioned on the prior panel, what that can mean to entire ecosystem of innovations that can occur, that's, that's where the real potential and real promises. And Amanda, you're on the ground dealing with local government IDs and people who need services and trying to use blockchain to empower individuals. Can you talk about your experiences? Yes, I also want to just go off of what Rebecca was saying because I really value what you were saying. I think blockchain is not a solution and I'm gonna stress that, it's a tool. Uh, computers improve the ability to marshal the facts. So how you're gonna get those facts, where they're gonna go, who, what the compliance function frameworks are, if there are any at all. You can't just slap blockchain onto a system and think that everything's gonna go dandy. Um, so that's my perspective. And looking at the many frustrations that I had when starting my company, including um, we are in the worst crisis uh, in New York um, since the Great Depression. There's 20% um, of all um, money that goes out to help people doesn't even make it to their hands. 97% of people have smartphones uh, that earn under $200 a week, but they a lot of people don't have identities, so they can't even access things. Um, if you get stopped on the street in New York and you don't have an ID to show, uh, you can get sent to Rikers right away. Um, there's a whole lot of um, issues and gaps in a system that is um, old, paper-based, and inefficient. Um, so when I was looking at all these frustrations, uh, blockchain seemed like a 
very good tool to start addressing some of them. Um, so as I mentioned before, we have a pilot running in the Bronx and we have learned a lot in the past year and a half. And I have also, um, we have spoken to a lot of different government organizations. We have spoken to many, many nonprofits. Uh, we've spoken to, uh, nonprofits outside of New York, different countries. Um, and some of the, the obstacles that we faced one, uh, which is a pretty big one is that government, a lot of governmental organizations sees, uh, personal information as proprietary data. Um, and a big obstacle with trying to implement blockchain as a tool is the, the need for all stakeholders in that data exchange to be working together as authorizers of that data. Um, so I wrote down some things that I just wanna share with you, which I think are really necessary for blockchain to actually be productive in any kind of environment. And also just to emphasize, it's not useful for everything. Um, blockchain is basically really useful um, for auditing information and in under compliance functioning frameworks that are ethical and are, are well thought out. Um, there needs to be a lot of learning and testing. Um, and as I said, you have to have a really trustworthy process of inbound data. Um, if, if I'm getting a little bit too complicated, stop me. But um, the a blockchain is immutable, so anything that you put on the chain is there forever. It is anonymous in many ways, which is great. Um, but you have to make sure that whatever you put on there is correct and is verified. So you not only do you have to have blockchain, you have to have different steps of verification. Uh, so in our use case, we uh, had to come up with those steps and going around the different stakeholders that don't necessarily have time, uh, they're not interested. Um, so we have basically on the ground been looking at a, a very small puzzle, uh, piece of the puzzle. Um, we are looking at uh, the Career Advancement Club in the Bronx. So it's a group of 85 individuals who are trying to get a job, trying to finish their GED, and they're working with caseworkers. But the issue is, um, there's a few issues. One is on the caseworker side and on the NGO side, they're operating on CRMs that is not consumer facing. So whatever data they're inputting in their system and sharing with their funders and the board of directors, um, it's not actually coming from their clients. It's coming from their perspective of, of the interaction with their clients. And also, um, in working with caseworkers and clients, it's very short term. It's, um, it's maybe for two weeks and then they come back year, a year later or two years later. So if we we're trying to find a way to first put more value into these interactions that are happening and also make it uh, consume, consumer facing um, and make that communication process a little bit more streamlined. So I have a question for all of you, but I kind of want to start with David, which is um, we talked about different ways of provisioning identity, um, but 
there's all this new technology that kind of disaggregates your identity. And I'm interested in how do we think about accountability, whether it's a government or a company or something like blockchain? Yeah, I think one, and I think Estonia has been sort of mentioned here, and I think they are, you know, the future's here, it's sort of unevenly distributed. And I think um, looking at Estonia and how they structured uh, both sort of more traditional way of um, uh, encrypting information and also integrating blockchains. It's not a fully blockchain environment that they have. Uh, so it's using the combination of those two, um, I think, gives us an insight uh, into what the future could look like. I know the U.S. is going to be a, a bit more of a challenge just because of our historical um, uh, and how we treated you know, minorities along the way. So how it's implemented across countries is going to be a challenge. But sort of the infrastructure of how they set it up um, is, uh, I think it's pretty telling. And so for all of you, you know, now that we're in a post-Cambridge analytical world, it's kind of changed the notion of what we think about digital identity. And, you know, oh, I'll just log in with everything, you know, with Facebook. Um, so how do you think that changes um, what's going to develop in digital identities? So ultimately, when we're looking at how companies are using our data, we have to think about their business models. And um, Google and Facebook get a lot of attention. Uh, and I would argue, and I'm saying this as an individual, not representing a company, um, that it's, it's actually legitimate that Facebook is being treated differently than Google because their business model is different. Yes, they're both providing a service for free, uh, that they then monetize through ads, but they do it in two different ways. Google is playing that intermediary role. They are working with advertisers to identify an audience that's relevant to that advertiser and put an ad in front of you that's maybe more relevant to you because they know something about what your tastes and opinions are, your search habits. Facebook has, at least in the past, um, as we found with Cambridge Analytica and others, made the raw data available for permanent download. And this is one of the, the big challenges of our day is if we're talking about gran more granular uh, um, components of who we are, our identities, how do we make those time bound? Because the fact that Cambridge Analytica has this data permanently and who knows who they shared it with, uh, that's fundamentally different from at least my understanding of Google's business model, for instance. And this is where societal regulation, society has to come together and decide what are we comfortable with? What, should, what do we want to allow? Because on the way in here, uh, I got an update on my um, uh, on Twitter about the new privacy policies going in place in response to GDPR coming May 25th. And I don't know how many words it was, but I scrolled, and it was 63 scrolls with my thumb. So 63 scrolls. And it's no wonder that a couple of years ago, when polled, half of Americans had never heard the words privacy policy. And so I, we're in this situation where it's, com it's completely unrealistic to expect that everyone here is going to serve as their own attorney and read however many pages, uh, essentially a, a full-length play, for every app they log into. So we have to make some decisions at the societal, societal level and decide which business practices and business models we are comfortable with. Can I add to that? I, I think you're absolutely right. I would also point out, however, I, I have two, two members of my team back here who actually read all the privacy policies so you don't have to, and, and then compare them against each other 
to actually determine what they're really disclosing and what they're not actually disclosing at all, despite all the language. Uh, and, and actually, our, our 2018 index that's evaluating companies on their disclosures is, is coming out tomorrow morning, and we're launching it in the Italian Academy just across campus uh, at 9.30. But advertising aside, um, companies, you know, they, they put out the gobbledygook book in order to be compliant with whatever law they happen to be under. But they're not actually, I mean, when, when we evaluated, you know, the major, the major platforms to see are they genuinely disclosing everything they could disclose about what's being collected, how it's being used, with whom it's being shared, for what purposes, under what circumstances, None of them are disclosing sufficient. How long is it being retained? None of them are disclosing as much as they could. In fact, a Korean company does much better than, than Microsoft and you know, uh, everybody else. And, and Facebook does quite poorly on the, that particular set of questions. Um, but, and, and I don't think is going to rise to the top of the pack um, uh, despite its, its, its latest announcements. But, but I, I, I guess the point is um, that it's, it's one thing if you have a platform where people are sharing photos and pictures of their babies, but if this is a platform that's be becoming, if, if, if a company is offering a service that is being touted as an identity authentication tool that is then going to be tied to your ability to obtain services, to do all kinds of other things. Um, those companies, any company that is in the business of ID in any way, ought to be put under particularly scrutiny, particular scrutiny and be held to particularly high standards. They need to be making a very public commitment to respect users' rights, to privacy, and freedom of expression, because it interrelates, as, as you very importantly pointed out. There needs to be clear evidence that the company is conducting impact assessments and risk assessments about how is its business, how are its business operations potentially going to be adversely affecting users? Is there clear executive management board oversight over these risks? You'd be shocked how many companies provide no evidence that such things are going on. Are there grievance and remedy mechanisms that are at, at all meaningful? I mean, some just basic disclosure, the, the lack of basic disclosure um, amongst, particularly when you get away from a small handful of companies that have joined the Global Network Initiative and that, that, that have, have made, you know, are making more public commitments. But if, if, if you look at kind of all these vendors that are providing plat data platforms and services, you know, do, do you see their, their, their CEO making a strong commitment? Do you, do you see oversight practices? Do you see evidence provided by the company that they have independent third-party security audits going on? They have bug bounty programs, that, that they're really being robust and credibly so? That they, that they have a, pol a clear policy for handling data breaches and, and notifying subjects? I mean, the number of companies that don't disclose to the user that they have any policy for handling data breaches? You know, not that you disclose all the details to to you know help the adversary, but just some credible evidence that you have a commitment to a certain level of of action. 
Um, and the, the number of companies, you know, it's, it's most companies are disclosing very little of anything, um, even to experts who could then kind of help users navigate this with, with some benchmarks, or even to journalists whose job it is to, to try and parse this stuff. And that they don't disclose it to, to the public just generally. So there's, there's a lot that needs to be done in this area if we're, if we're going to really even begin to establish trust or accountability. So that um, brings me to another question. You know, in the previous panel, we talked about credit cards and how there's a whole system of trust and rules and best practices, but there are also Regulation. laws that govern the banking industry and the credit industry. And in the U.S., we have the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which means that you have the right to see your credit report and to correct errors and to know how it's used. And so I'm interested, you know, from all of you, this new law is coming in in Europe, the General Data Protection Regulation, and it basically enshrines privacy as a human right. And what that means is actually data rights, right? You have the right to know who has your data. You have the right to know who's processing your data. You have the right to see your data. You have the right to challenge machine-based algorithmic decisions. Um, and I'm interested in how you think that that's going to affect the government, because it's governments and businesses are going to be subject to it. So how is that going to affect how we think about the future of digital identities? David, do you want to? Start? Sure. No, I, I think um, that is sort of laying the foundation of what I was talking about earlier, where we are seeing a shift of data ownership. Uh, you know, now it's owned by Facebook, it's owned by MasterCard, Microsoft. Um, and this is sort of the first step where we're seeing data shifting back to the individual. Uh, and when that happens, um, again, sort of, I think for me, the, the question I've been focusing on is around the whole economic sort of ecosystem that then supports something like that. So if you think about even Google or Facebook sort of being a middleman from advertisers to the individuals, if that's the only purpose that they're serving, uh, why can't a platform be built potentially uh, if, again, the privacy of the data is getting back to the individual? And then people will say, well, we can't have, you know, that's a sort of a private sector effort. Uh, but we've seen in the internet, you know, I think Yochai Benkler has talked about it quite a bit, where we've had the sort of open source economic, we've had foundation support, something like Linux, Apache web server. So you could see these additional platforms being built like a Facebook, like a Google. Um, and at the end, the user is then getting the, the revenue that's, that's coming out of it. Um, so I sort of see this as sort of a first step in that direction. Again, data being uh, owned uh, and all the safeguards going back to the individual, but having a very strong government and figuring out that governance and sort of society and coming to what that agreement is, is going to be the challenge. But I think if we figure that out, um, it should be a pretty interesting sort of future. I'll comment. Um, there's so much that I have to say, so I'm just trying to figure out uh, how to make my thoughts make sense, but I I'm really like the concept of the GDPR. I think uh, it's uh, that and um, corporate social responsibility and principles that basically bring in non-government actors um, into the picture um, with the sphere of influence and compliance is really important, and it will be more and more important. Um, one of the things that uh, stood out to me when I was researching the GDPR is the right to be forgotten, which is something that is 
um, highly talked about, especially with blockchain. Um, but when I was thinking about it for months, um, my conclusion was what's also really important is the right to be anonymous. The right to be forgotten is a bit scary to me, just the idea. Just because what I'm looking at now um, is, and what I'm concerned about is there's so much data out there that's just not even being used and it's not even being used for the right reasons. Um, it's not valued and it can be, and it can be um, measured and, and put on a platform that can actually help people that might not have identities, that might not be able to get a bank account. Um, for example, uh, to take it back again to the people that we're working with right now, they're doing a lot. They're going to financial advising. Um, they're going to get help. They are working with many different service providers, but none of this is actually being used for something like an alternative credit score. So can you, I'm, I'm a very positive person, so my intention is to start focusing on the things that aren't being looked at in the right way or aren't being looked at at all. So. Yeah, um, I think um, the GDPR certainly has the, the, the potential to strengthen pri privacy, but it's interesting that, that you mentioned the right to for be forgotten because we mentioned before that privacy helps freedom of expression, but this is actually one area where the, where the two clash and where I think we in Europe sometimes have the, 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 the balance wrong sometimes between privacy uh, and, and, and free speech uh, rights. And, and this is, of course, also something that you have to keep in mind, that privacy is not a panacea for everything. Uh, sometimes privacy also has, has costs. Uh, and so, so there are some really difficult uh, balancing to, uh, to be made. But I think that in the terms of, for, for instance, if we go back to Denmark, where the ambition is basically to digitalize the entire public sector, uh, and, and part of that is to maybe um, slacken some of the some of the, the legal safeguards that you normally have because that takes up time and it, you know it's it's uh, it makes things uh, it's not time efficient and so on and and in that sense I think the the, the GDPR helps and also to sort of uh, limit at least the the scope creep that I think all governments uh, have an inherent tendency. Let, let me take one last example for instance. There was a ruling from the European Court of, of Justice on, on data retention, basically seeing that data retention on phone records and so on was a violation, was a violation of, of, uh, of right to privacy and data protection. <clears throat> the Danish government has said, well, we're going to look into it, but we're not going to change. Uh, we're going to keep, keep uh, the, the, the records, data retention, even though it's a violation of, of, uh, uh, of, of European law. So basically, they, the Danish government has said, it's more important to, to have data retention than respect uh, privacy uh, rights. In that sense, it's, it's good to get some teeth. Yeah, uh, you know, GDPR is great for Europeans and for people who use platforms that have enough European users that they're, you know, having to comply, but that's not the world, right? And uh, a lot of places where digital ID systems are being rolled out have no data protection law, have no privacy law, or when they do, uh, have privacy law, it's applied only to the private sector and the government gets exempted. Uh, 
So the bureaucracy kind of can do whatever it wants, even if, and, and kind of the law is selectively applied uh, and judiciary is not independent, oversight is not robust, uh, et cetera. So, so we, we have sort of an ideal, although with some question marks around expression and other things, but uh, it's, it's, you know, the GDPR isn't about to kind of, you know, GDPR fairy dust in it and it solves all problems. But, along it's, with but, it, but it's great for lawyers who, uh, who <laughs> it's, it's great for law firms. Who, sure, yeah, I mean, many of the things in the GDPR, you know, show great promise to, to, to really make a difference, to incentivize much better kinds of business models that are much more user-centric, that require agency, that require opt-in um, around things like targeted advertising, potentially, and so on. But we'll see, you know, again, how it gets enforced, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's all yet to be seen. So when California was really a pioneer with emissions and safety standards in automobiles, you saw the car makers jump to and raise their standards for everyone. I think we'll see some of that with GDPR, maybe not the whole planet, but um, but some of them, especially the large platforms. That said, I don't see every country adopting um, something exactly like GDPR because it it serves the European needs. It serves European needs, European uh, societal preferences, and you're going to see different societies making different choices. I do think it's really important that it adds predictability of how your data is going to be used on top of usability, interoperability, some of the things that we always talk about, it's really important for us to understand how our data is going to be used so that we can make informed choices because while um, I agree that policy, uh, sorry, not policy, disclosure of how data is being used is very important, it's just very hard for people in their regular lives to really make sense of it. And so I think that's why the predictability of common laws that will be um, multinational in nature are are certainly going to have an impact going forward, and GDPR is one of them. Should we take a few questions? Uh, thank you a lot. I was very, very intrigued, I mean, very interested in your debate, the two debates, and my question is about the future. I mean, we spoke about blockchain, cryptocurrencies, and so on. How do you envisage uh, the Web 3.0 in the future? I don't know. I was watching. I watched the opening of season two of Westworld last night, and and the the, the robots, uh, you know, staged a violent revolution against their human overlords. So maybe that's the future. Um, no, uh, but but the future is really uncertain. I mean, you know, we're getting into Internet of Things. We're getting into artificial intelligence. A again, how do you ensure accountability? How do you ensure governance? And I mean, kind of governance with a small g, so that. Again, when power is exercised through these systems, that it is held accountable. And if the power is being exercised by a non-human, who's accountable? And especially when you have systems, I mean, we're doing research on Internet of Things, where you'll, you, you have a system that is actually operated by three different companies simultaneously, you know, one doing the login and authentication and the other doing the hardware and so on. And then nobody's taking responsibility when something goes wrong. They're all pointing fingers at each other. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I think we have a lot of work cut out for us in terms of making sure that when people's rights are abused, when harm occurs to human beings, that there's a consequence for someone who who had something to do with that harm taking place because if that if 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 there's no consequences 
for, for the people building and operating the systems when harm takes place or the, the consequences are so diffuse as to be meaningless, uh, I, I won't be very optimistic about the future at all. And perhaps the robot overlords will revolt and, and kind of gun us all down. Can I just chime in here? Because I read this article in Wired that was an interview with the president of Estonia who was saying that they're going to set up an agency to govern artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, and so maybe they'll be leading the way here too. Not that we just have to worry about the future, but you know, the China personal score that was all over the news today makes one think about, you know, if you cross the street in between traffic, if you do the sorts of things that are behaviorally not liked by your government, um, your chances for what, flying on an airplane, taking a train, these are all have been uh, cut back now in China. So how do we actually prevent ourselves from getting that far? Yeah, that's a, that's a very, I, I think it's, I think actually in these, like in, in Europe where terrorism sadly has become very prevalent, I think, I think if, if, you, if you said to people, listen, do you want CCTV cameras with facial recognition that could pick out, you know, like they did in China, like one guy among 60,000 um, and then mark that up against the database against terrorist suspects, they didn't have to be convicted, just like people who are on intelligence services uh, database red flagged. I think most people would say, "Yeah, I, th I think that would be uh, I think that would be a, go uh, a good idea." And how do you go against that? Uh, that's uh, th that's a very uh, good question. I, I mean, uh, the, the Chinese example will probably get some people to uh, to to think uh, to think twice, and also just learning from the past. Um, so if go back to the Inquisition, for instance, uh, this is a long time ago, but the most, the most scary part about the Inquisition was not that they sometimes burned people at the stake, it was their data. It was you know, some of the most meticulous records we have from the Middle Ages are these inquisitors who went to villages and just asked people, you know, who did you have sex with? What did you eat? What kind of clothes were, were you wearing? And if these inquisitors had used their, their knowledge and all their data, to sort of say, okay, how do we prevent the spread of diseases? Maybe they could have, you know, cured the plague or at least found out how to contain it. But instead, they they used it to root out anyone who went up against uh, a church authority uh, at uh, at the time. And that impulse is still very much with us as as, as human beings, uh, even though we we we're, we see ourselves in, in in this part of the world as as very uh, enlightened. So so I think we have to be aware. Of, um, of of the good and and, and bad uh, things that the the data that we uh, can collect that we can use can be used to extremely positive things that it's inevitable that we should use it, but also that we have dark impulses and especially when moral panics start we we there's a tendency in us to 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 use them to things that might be difficult to to roll back so I don't have a better answer then of course you know gdpr maybe uh, things like that um, strong constitutional protections human rights may play a role but uh, education is such a cliche but i really think it's 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 crucial that we become aware of also the drawbacks of these things those questions from the inquisitors they sound pretty bad burning at the stake sounds bad too though in response to the question i think it's also important to see what is happening here in the united states already so no we don't have the social score that, that china has but data and algorithms are being used in some interesting ways and, and sometimes very sloppily. I think a good example of this is a report that ProPublica did last year about how in the state of Florida, 
Uh, data and algorithms are being used in bail and sentencing guidelines, suggestions to judges. And these are black boxes. You know, The companies that do this say, this is my proprietary algorithm. I can't show it to you. But then no one gets to actually look and see, is this ethical? Is there something here that needs to be fixed? And in that particular example, they said, we don't take race into account. That was true. They didn't take race into account. They took geography into account. They took where you lived into account, which is often pretty synonymous with race. And so that's happening right here in the United States. And I think that um, it's easy to, to talk about Westworld and a dystopian future, uh, but we should look at what's going on today and, and fix those problems first. And I just wanted to add, um, we don't have a government score, but there are third-party companies that give you these invisible online consumer scores, right? And it governs whether you're going to see an ad for a payday loan or a credit card, a for-profit university or a state university. So um, it, I think it's already happening on another level. Why is the U.S. so far compared to the EU in terms of passing a similar legislation as the GDPR? Is it because Americans don't care so much about uh, privacy? Are the lobbies here better? I was having um, probably a little bit more complicated, but uh, I would say there are competing interests in the U.S. Um, that are trying to work itself out. Um, so absolutely, I would think some of the bigger uh, financial players um, uh, have a stake in if you adopted something like what you have in Europe and the U.S., I would see it affecting um, the bottom line of companies. So not to say that it won't happen, but I think right now it's more um, uh, competing interests um, that, are, that are sort of playing itself out as opposed to Europe maybe, which is a little bit more ahead. To put it less politely, we need campaign finance reform very badly. I would just add there's also a historical difference, right? We haven't decided um, judicially that there is a fundamental right to consumer privacy. We have the right, you know, um, to have privacy from the government in some respects. And so our system has evolved in this sectoral way. Like we have HIPAA, which covers medical privacy, and the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which covers um, the ability to see your credit report. And we even have the Video Privacy Protection Act, but we don't have a blanket system. Okay, well, thank you, everybody. Thank you, panelists. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.